Good morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, um, verses 1 to 18, uh, from NLT, if you'd like to have a read. Paul gives up his rights. Am I not as free as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus, our Lord, with my own eyes? Isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? Even if others think I am not an apostle, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof that I am the Lord's apostle. This is my answer to those who question my authority. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a believing wife with us as the other apostles have done and the Lord's brothers do and as Peter does? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? What soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing merely a human opinion, or does the law say the same thing? For the law of Moses says, You must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us, so that he, the one who plows, and the one who threshes the grain, might both expect a share of the harvest. Since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Yet I have never used any of these rights. And I am not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. In fact, I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I'm compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. If I were doing this on my own initiative, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice, for God has given me this sacred trust. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without ever charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just pray for Brian. Lord, thank you so much for um, our brother Brian and for um, the blessing of having him here to speak to us today ask that the, the words of his mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable to you, Lord. Amen. Well, greetings. It's great uh, delight to me and to Margaret to uh, come back to our old stamping ground and meet many old friends who don't look a day older <laughs> because we're going blind. <laughs> <laughs> Luke tells me that in recent weeks you've been travelling through Paul's first letter to Corinthians. 
This week, I've been given the assignment of sharing some thoughts on Chapter 9. I'll build them around the theme of compelled to tell. You'll immediately remember, of course, just where that phrase popped up in the passage that was just read, except you won't because the passage was read in a modern translation, which I wasn't anticipating. <laughs> and the words compelled to preach are significant in what Paul had written. Actually, I know why Luke has gone south. Never mind the fact that he's gone back to the congregation he grew up in as a boy and then into the ministry, and they wanted to have him back for the 21st anniversary of the new building. But I know that his real reason was that the passage is difficult. And I'll get him for that. <laughs> Speaking personally, I enjoy getting letters from friends. But having been trained initially as a high school teacher, I always have a compulsion to correct any spelling errors. Unfortunately, the letter to the Corinthians is all Greek to me as you'll soon see. So it was written by Paul. The first impression people got when they met the Apostle Paul was that he was shorter than the average man and he had a prominent nose. But could he talk? In every town he visited, he made quite an impression. But that didn't always result in him finding people to support his ministry. When he came to Corinth, for example, he looked up instead a couple of tent makers who gave him a job. In the process, they heard from him about Jesus and they became strong Christians. You probably don't know their names. That's the beginning. Aquila and, ah, uh, yes, but uh, in a list that Paul uh, included in a, in a letter to the Roman church some years later, he referred to them the other way around, Priscilla and Aquila, because apparently Priscilla was quite a leader, Horace, a woman. He was really there in Corinth in order to tell them about Jesus because it was a Greek city that hadn't been visited by the news up till then. And then when he moved away from Corinth to minister in other places like Ephesus, he had to write letters to keep them on the ball. He tried on this first visit to Corinth to talk about Jesus in the Jewish synagogue, which was his habit, go there first. And he was not welcomed. The message aroused so much opposition among strict Jews that Paul was kicked out. Oddly enough, not by the synagogue ruler himself, but by other people. In fact, after hearing what Paul wanted to 
to talk about, the ruler invited him to teach regularly in his own house next door, which was not very tactful. Particularly since whatever other traits Paul had, he was certainly a straight talker. You'll notice that in previous sessions, he was, in your previous sessions, he was quite prepared to rebuke the Corinthians for various failings in church life. Today's reading from chapter 9 is an example of this, and you'll have heard of some others already. It's not easy for us to follow Paul's train of thought here, with its references to obscure points of order in the ancient law of Moses, and his mentions of immoral behaviour by some congregational members in Corinth. We don't know the details. Maybe a loose paraphrase of the passage in Australian English might help without the swear words. See what you think. It's very dusty because it's been all over Europe and Asia and the Mediterranean Sea. But uh, if I'm going to be poor, I've got to be genuine. I'm told that there have been some arguments among you about my authority to teach you the story of Jesus. Some of you are objecting that I can't be called an apostle because I'm not one of the original 12. But like I told you before, Jesus appeared to me personally after his ascension and he gave me a job to do. Besides, the very fact that you've heard of him through me and become believers makes me, at the least, the apostle to you. I've also heard that someone has labelled Barnabas and me frauds because wives didn't travel along with us, as was the case with other apostles like, like Peter and the brothers of our Lord Jesus. So what? What's your problem? Someone else apparently objected to the fact that the first time I came to Corinth, I worked as a tent maker instead of asking the church to support me. So, so, what are you trying to read into that? Mind you, we could have chosen to rely on your financial support telling people about Jesus and church planting, these were our work, and we had a right to expect support like the other apostles had been getting. By the way, the law of Moses endorsed, endorsed this principle long ago. In one place, it tells us not to put a muzzle on the ox that grinds grain for a farmer because the ox's labour gives it the right to feed on some of that grain. Similarly, the old law said that workers in the temple who prepare the sacrifices for burning should be allowed to keep some parts back for their own daily food. That the, the clincher is the fact that the Lord Jesus himself updated these old laws 
by saying that those who devote their work, uh, their time to working for the Lord, finding it's hard to read with the uh, light in the background, those who devote their working life to public preaching have the right to ask for financial support. Except, of course, in our case, we didn't ask for it. We waived that right so that it would be crystal clear to you that all that we were preaching, the gospel, was because we couldn't help doing so. We feel compelled to let the world know about Jesus. The good news is that God freely forgives those who turn to him. I, for one, would never want to blur this message by charging people to hear it. So you can stop paying Luke now. <laughs> Got the picture? Lots of today's preachers haven't. All congregations. In my working life as an academic, Margaret and I were privileged to participate in many varieties of church life in many countries. Uh, I counted up once, it ran into double figures, spending a fair bit of time in a church. It gave us the opportunity to ask ourselves, how much does the operation of this congregation, or that, or that, reflect a biblical pattern? Some churches have been episcopal in their style of management. The word episcopal derives from the Greek word episkopos, from which we also derive the word bishop. You can almost see that word in it, episcopos. Its original meaning was overseer. Over the centuries, Many groups of churches have coalesced into denominations governed by a hierarchy of archbishops, bishops and clergy with ordinary members way down the bottom in voting status. It's a management model that evolved very early in church history, but because it was mimicking the class distinctions in surrounding society, it was corrupting the biblical model. Some churches have been presbyterial in style. Now that word derives from the Greek word presbyteros, meaning elder. And that style of management applies to congregations governed by councils of elders. Now let's be kind and say that elder is supposed to mean mature not necessarily ancient. Generally, such councils are uh, chaired by an ordained elder or minister, and many churches of that kind came out of the 16th century Reformation. And then some churches have been congregational in their management style. Many of them treasure the Greek word ecclesia, Meaning, meaning an assembly of voting citizens. 
They tend to be freestanding rather than linked under strict denominational oversight. Most recently, some churches have evolved which describe themselves as apostolic. And that leans heavily on the Greek word apostolos, which literally means someone sent on a mission. Someone sent on a mission. Such churches are usually also Pentecostal in their form of worship and operate under the rule of a leader who has final authority over the pulpit and over church policy because he is regarded as the apostle to that church. Which brings us back to Paul. In our reading, Paul notes that some Corinthians were questioning his authority. They knew something about the original apostles who'd met Jesus in Palestine. And Paul had obviously told them already about his personal encounter with Jesus. He mentions that in the reading. But they clearly chose not to believe him. In the reading, Paul refutes some of the almost petty objections that his critics had raised. Most of them were merely point scoring, looking for ways to marginalise his criticisms of them. His response was to point to the results of his ministry and then, and then draw attention back to the gospel of Christ. Now, you know the Greek word for gospel, don't you? Euangelion. Yes, everybody knew that. <laughs> Transliterated into English, the evangel, which literally means, this time, good news. So the euangelion is the message and the apostle, apostolos, is the messenger. If we put the emphasis in that way on function rather than status, that makes us all, in one way or another, apostles or gospel people, which is the title that Luke has attached to this whole series on Corinthians. So, are you a messenger? It's not about status, it's about function. Interestingly, years later when Paul was writing to the Roman church, one person to whom he extended a special greeting was Junior, a woman who he said had been outstanding among the apostles. So it didn't quite come through in a newer translation today. Oh, golly, what? A woman in leadership? <laughs> it was certainly high praise to have been singled out by Paul as an effective messenger. And why not? Function is what matters, not status and not gender. Incidentally, at one period in our lives, Margaret and I were members of a church where over, this, over time, 
dissatisfaction had arisen with a very dictatorial minister. That church had been operating on the presbyterial model of government. Needing a new minister, the council and congregation, in consultation with each other, drew up a parish profile describing the kind of congregation they wanted to be and were. The minister they interviewed for the position professed to be in complete agreement with their profile, but within three months of arrival, he had appointed himself chairperson of all the committees of the church, and he stated that he expected that from this point on, the church would support his wider evangelistic ministry. It didn't work. And they eventually came to a parting of the ways. It was very grievous, very distressing. In his last meeting with the congregation, that minister declared that the church had, listen to it, rejected God's apostle meaning himself. And if there were members who felt that they'd been let down by their fellow voting members, he said, go to another church. Can you imagine a minister saying that to his people? He did. And what a contrast to the attitude of Paul, who was prepared to set his status aside so as to present the gospel in the best light. What was his motivation? He said, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach, compelled to tell. does this priority of getting the word out about Jesus to, to other people, does that grab you the same way? Let me come back for a moment to the list of friends that I mentioned earlier where Paul, when he was writing to another church, the church in Roman, Rome, uh, greeted these people. I mentioned Junia, when Paul said she was outstanding among the apostles, he was implying that all those in the list were, in a real sense, apostles. And there were more than 27 other people mentioned in that list in Romans chapter 14. No hint there of hierarchy, it's function, not status. And at least nine of the people in that list, even in that day, were women. Besides Junior, he warmly greeted one I've mentioned already and well known to you, Priscilla. Oh, we know that name. She was a tent maker with her husband in Corinth. That's the one. The very same, after Priscilla's name, he mentions her husband Aquila, which suggests she was the leading light in that combination. 
and they'd probably had to get out of Corinth later on after this letter was written when things got rough there for Christians and they went back to Rome where they'd come from earlier. In fact, at the time Paul wrote the Corinthian letter that we're currently looking at some years down the track from his first visit, the church in Rome was actually meeting in the house of Aquila and Priscilla. Oops, Priscilla and Aquila. I'm particularly mentioning Paul's references to women here because it reminds us that the equal rights and roles of women are well embedded in the biblical narrative, despite the cultural pressures of the time. Not in many churches today, still. Even today in Perth, some are still very male chauvinistic. They openly declare that women are subordinate. That's the word that's used. It's so out of kilter with modern society that the church's public image today is suffering greatly as a result. People are waking up about this. That's why it was greatly chuffed to hear that your preacher last week was a female apostle from this congregation. Dare I say it? <laughs> Another thing to note about the list in Romans 14, if it's to be taken seriously, is that it implies that in a healthy congregation, members play many leadership roles. Churches that let a small number of people who are good up front dominate and rule the roost, as it were, deny the range of spiritual gifts that are meant to flesh out the church's mission. Now, you'll be coming across that, I don't know how many Sundays on from now, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. It will spell out a range of functions that characterize a healthy church as it draws on the varied spiritual gifts of its members. Sadly, the evidence from the chapters you've already studied is that rivalries and divisions had fractured the Corinthian assembly. The church had experienced what I've described here before as a splitting headache. The sort you have when people are not willing to negotiate, so they just go off somewhere else. Scandalous, biblically speaking. In this connection, I'm reminded of another church where a dispute arose over the design of a new church building. A small group who were champion, championing one possible design got angry when another design, more mission-oriented than theirs, was approved by a big majority. They promptly walked out. The wound on both sides was deep. But I thank God that that church has survived. And still, from what I can see, has a strong sense of mission today. This mob called themselves um, the Billabong. 
Given the biblical emphasis on members of congregations working together, churches ought to be expert in conflict resolution within their own company and in the wider society. Experts, that is, to use gospel language, experts in bringing peace and reconciliation. What has to be avoided is the political shiftiness which sweeps disagreements or known cases of sinning under the carpet, using the rationalisation that it's the best way to keep the peace. Rubbish. Gospel people know that until things are brought out into the open, the primary mission of that congregation will wilt. So, to sum up, one of the most serious questions that must be asked of any church is, to what extent do all believing members of this church share in formulating its vision? And to what extent are they leading in various ministries? There's not only just one. As I reminded us earlier, the theme that Luke chose for this series on 1 Corinthians was gospel people. Gospel means good news, which is the core Christian message. The message that Jesus offers the Father's forgiveness and his spirit to anyone who truly wants to come home to him. So the primary mission of real gospel people is not just to go to church, but to tell out and to live out that message. I pray that you're all on board with this vision and that you are compelled, that is bursting to share that good news wherever an opportunity arises. Please, God. Amen.